Let's pray. God, help us this morning as we open the text not to do so with our own strength under the idea that we can somehow generate enough faith or power in measure to be able to um, discover truth, but with the reliance on your spirit to show us Christ. And so we pray for that this morning. Spirit, would you be active here this morning? We invite you into this time. We ask that you'd show us your mercies on the pages of Genesis 49. In Jesus' name, amen. Window into my childhood. I'll be vulnerable with you this morning. It was the last game of the 1991 Major League Baseball regular season. And 10-year-old Jeremy Deck was watching as the Cubs closed out their season, beating the St. Louis Cardinals, of course, 7-3. to There would be no playoffs that year for this Cub team that housed many of my childhood heroes. Names like Ryan Sandberg, Andre Dawson, Mark Grace, Greg Maddox. Despite their brilliance, and, and those were really the most fun players to watch as far as I was concerned, these Cubs would, would finish a lousy 77 and 83. And it was mind-boggling to 10-year-old Jeremy to try to reconcile how a team so talented on the face of it, a team that, that nearly won the pennant two years earlier with the same group of guys could possibly finish fourth place in their conference, which at that time was the NL East. And watching in that game, Greg Maddox pitch yet another win against the Cardinals on the last day of the season was both fun, because it's fun to end with a win, to watch the last game of the season, you get a win, and frustrating, because I didn't understand why they couldn't do more. I experienced this at the end of many summers as a child. Not all of them, but many of my my childhood summers. I'd watch the season with a hopeful anticipation that maybe this year it would happen. Right When I first got into watching the Cubs, watching baseball a lot. I was like eight years old, and that was when they went to the National League Championship Series. So every year after that, I was watching with the hopeful anticipation that we can do it again, do it again. And yet, inevitably, more often than not, the Cubs would play a last game of the regular season in which that was the end. The season would go no further. And when that happened, I would... Actually, I would do this. I I wouldn't want to turn the TV off until the broadcast was totally over and WGN had switched to the next thing that was on their programming list. Because I knew that it would be another six or seven months before I would see Wrigley Field on my television and hear the sound of the organs behind Harry Carey and Steve Stone as they called the game. You know, I had a big problem because the team I had placed my hope behind always seemed to end the season out of contention So on this particular sunny, warm day in 1991, I did what I always did. I kept watching as Harry wrapped up the broadcast with the stats from the last win of the season, the organ blaring behind him. I loved that. I loved it. But as he did it, something legendary occurred. Harry said this. He said, a lot of things happened today. I promise there's a point to this. Okay, A lot of things happened today, and they were all great. And they were all thrilling. And they were all dramatic. I have a hairy impression, but I'm not going to do it right now. 
Too bad we couldn't have had a victory that meant a pennant, but that day will come. As sure as there are green apples, someday the Chicago Cubs are going to be in the World Series, and maybe sooner than we think. So, as sure as some apples are green, he said, the Chicago Cubs will be in the World Series. You know, those are dangerous words to say to a 10-year-old whose mind and heart is always filled with so much hope after the end of every season who would favor green apples to red ones every day after that when given the choice. But eventually those words would be proven true. 25 baseball seasons later, two things happened. First, now 35-year-old Jeremy Deck watched as the Cubs beat the Indians in Game 7 of the World Series in dramatic fashion, you guys, extra innings. Second, after the game, uh, thousands of people in the Chicagoland area left green apples at the iconic statue of Harry Carey outside of Wrigley Field. But um, all of it brings up kind of an important question, right? Because there's the season of longing there. And the question is, how does one live in between the promise of relief from this problem that they're facing and the moment when that promise will be fulfilled? How does one live in the present in between those two things? Living in between those two moments for Cubs fans wasn't easy. You know, you had a strong sense of hope for these guys. You had this declaration made by the most legendary broadcast, broadcaster in Major League Baseball history. But year after year, it was clear that this was not happening the way he said it would. And I remember walking past this particular poster shop in the Cherryville Mall. My family would go there once a month uh, in Rockford, Illinois, to have dinner at the food court. Then we walk around the mall. There's this one poster shop that had this poster at the top left-hand corner of the store that had the backs of three Cubs players bearing the numbers of Sandberg and Grace and Dawson. And it said at the top, hope springs eternal, you know. How do you find hope in the midst of longing? How do you find that kind of a hope in the midst of waiting? And a hope and a, a, a longing and a waiting far more severe to the human heart is expressed at the end of Genesis, and the answer to the question in a much more serious kind of way comes to bear in chapter 49. Because in Genesis 49, we now turn our attention again to Jacob. We've seen in recent weeks God's worked all things together for the good of his people, even in Egypt, even for Egypt, and even through Egypt. God told Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. We remember God told Jacob's dad, Isaac, Do not go down to Egypt. But here he tells Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. And so Jacob obeyed, and just as his grandfather Abraham had gathered up all of his possessions and his entire family and left for the land that God would show him by faith. Now at the end of Genesis, Jacob gathers up all of his possessions and his entire family and leaves that land for Egypt by faith that the Lord is with him, that the Lord's in control over all of this. And now we see him blessing his children as he prepares for his inevitable death. And as Jacob does this, we see the question that we're wrestling with this morning answered again in a far more significant circumstance because Jacob begins the blessing this way. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 49. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. Okay, in other words, what Jacob is about to tell us, the words that are about to follow from this introduction, is a final statement in the entire book of Genesis 
on the primary theme of the whole book. Okay, so next week as we end the chapter, there are a few things that we tie up, specifically the main theme of the last few chapters. But here in chapter 49, we see the final statement on the primary theme of the entire book. Jacob wants us to again be reminded of God's plan to to bring rescue and redemption to the primary problem that faces humanity through the seed that was first promised in the garden. Genesis 3.15, right after sin had entered the world, and then promised to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. Promised seed would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Through your seed, he says to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And according to Jacob here in verse 1, that's finally going to happen in days to come. In days to come, there's a future event that these narratives now explicitly point forward to. And Jacob now points backwards to the prior narratives to show us what's going to happen in the future. He uses these past narratives and he says, do you want to know what the point of all this was? Well, let me show you. It has to do with what is to come. And it's interesting, this phrase, in days to come, it's used three times in the entire Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, okay? All written together as a unit. And this phrase, used all three times... It's used here in Jacob, by Jacob in Genesis 49. We see it again in the oracles of Balaam when we get to the book of Numbers. And then it's also in the last words of Moses at the end of the Pentateuch, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Okay. And in all three locations, whenever you see this phrase, in the days to come, it's always in the context of God's future deliverance of his people. Always in the context of this future deliverance. So this question of how one is to wait while this promise, this future promise is still yet to be fulfilled, this question of a longing for something to come and rescue you out of your deepest dilemma, the promise has been made, but it's not quite there yet, and here you find yourself in the present, that question is answered in this text in three different parts of the narrative. And these three parts of the narrative in Genesis 49 really gives us a picture of the whole Bible. Genesis 49 is really, as it wraps up Genesis, as it wraps up this fundamental uh, theme of the entire book, the primary theme of the entire book, it also shows itself to be a picture of the whole Bible. It's like a microcosm of what we find when we read through Genesis to the end of Revelation. It's extremely significant. So three parts to the narrative that we'll look at this morning that answers this question. In the first part, we see this stunning reminder of the problem that the book has sought to address from the very, very beginning. Okay? The problem the book is sought to address from the beginning. That's what we see first. The primary problem in Genesis, the problem from which God's people require rescue. Okay? Second part in the narrative, we see the promise that was made in the midst of that problem. So immediately after the problem comes into existence, we see a promise that's made. And we're going to see that promise from a couple of different angles in the text. And then finally, the present in which God's people wait. The present in which God's people, present time, present tense, right? In which God, God's people wait. Okay, so the problem, the promise, and the present. That's the outline of our time this morning. So let's begin with the problem. This is found in verses 3 through 7. If you want to see how the text is structured, let's begin in verse 3. Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, 
and the first fruits of my strength. Preeminence in dignity and preeminence in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So we're going to look at the specific narrative that these verses reference in just a minute. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And again, we'll see the specific narrative of that references, but just so that we're on the same page and we understand the order of what Jacob is doing here, his bless, his blessings are now expectedly following the birth order. So if you were, if you were to, to sit and watch in the ancient Near East as a father prior to his death blessed his sons, this is how you would expect to see that happen. From the oldest to the youngest, firstborn through the rest, with the sons of Leah, then the sons of the handmaidens Bilhah and Zilpah, and then the sons of Rachel, all in the order from which they were born. So he addressed Reuben, Simeon, and Levi in this first section, his oldest boys. And as he does so, we get a reminder of what we're up against in Genesis. We get a reminder of why, why it's being written. Why the question that I'm asking here at the front end even needs to be asked. Why there even is some sense of longing we see this problem that the book has sought to address from the very beginning. It's the problem of sin. It's the problem of the human heart because of sin. It's the problem of warped desires that lead to immorality and violence in the world around us. Reuben is told here that despite the fact that he would normally have preeminence in the ancient Near East as a firstborn, he will not have preeminence. Now that doesn't surprise, like we know, That doesn't surprise the reader of Genesis, right? Because we've already seen, all the way up to even the last chapter, and thanks Ben Reese for bringing the word last week, all the way up to the last chapter, when Jacob blesses Joseph's youngest over the oldest, right? That God, um, he continually works to undermine and usurp this worldly idea that it's through status and power that one receives blessing. God just does not operate this way. He doesn't give his blessing or condition his promise on the basis of status or position or some kind of earthly standing. He doesn't give it on the basis of our efforts or ability. That's why it was Isaac who was chosen and not Ishmael. Ishmael was the child of the flesh, the child of human effort, the child of trying to manufacture God's promise and bring it into, somehow force God's hand to bring the promise to bear. Instead, it was Isaac. The only way that it could be through Isaac was God's sheer grace, right? Isaac couldn't have existed without God's sheer grace. We've seen that repeatedly. And it's, it's given entirely by sheer grace, and that's precisely, the reason why is precisely what these verses show us. No amount of status or standing or strength. I mean, Reuben is the firstborn. His might, the first fruits of his strength, preeminence and power, the strongest child, in that respect. And yet that's not enough to overcome the, the reality that he is an adulterer. Though he excelled, he would excel no further because he already, as we already saw in chapter 35, so if you remember, it's the narrative that Jacob now points backwards to. 
when Jacob was away, Reuben went in and slept with Abraham's handmaiden, Bilhah, his brother's mom. And Jacob heard of it, the text told us. And here in this powerful moment, he tells, tells us that his firstborn, his might, the first fruit of his strengths, who excelled in power, was actually as unstable as water. Going up to his father's bed and defiling it with twisted desires and as such violating the honor of his father. What about Simeon and Levi, the next oldest? These were men who would lead other men into a certain kind of battle. They were certainly strong. Well, if you remember back to Genesis 34 and what happened after Dinah was defiled, their sister, their revenge at her mistreatment, at this horrible offense against her, turned into genocidal bloodshed. They killed not only the one who perpetrated the hateful act against Dinah, but they killed every male in the city, taking their women and children as plunder. And Jacob's verdict in 34 was that they were guilty, but now his sentencing here in chapter 49 is that they won't inherit from the land, essentially. And that actually becomes true. Simeon's tribe essentially disappears after the conquest in Old Testament uh, narrative, in biblical narrative. And Levi, his tribe is mercifully given the priesthood. So they don't have a portion of inheritance in the land. But, but the question arises here, why use his blessing to call these three firstborn sons out in the way that he does? Because certainly we could say that all of Jacob's sons that are on this list minus Joseph, we could say committed some form of, in, in the narrative I should say, she committed some form of abomination against the Lord, right? So, so why the first three? Why, why does it happen this way? Well, the ultimate purpose behind these first three being described in these terms is to show us the problem that we're facing, okay, that the strength of these three, the strength in their status, the firstborn and then his, his, the other older two brothers, could not overcome the power and the problem of sin. And that now makes room at the top for God's grace to be displayed because we know that what we're about to read about Judah actually isn't about Judah at all. We know too much about Judah. We know what happened in the, in the life of Judah as well, abominations against the Lord as well. But we also know that there's a recognition on the part of Judah of God's sheer grace. And so we see here the reason for, the, for these first few verses is that we might see the problem that we're facing so that, that room can now be made at the top for God's grace to be displayed in the promise that we now turn our attention to in verses 8 through 27. Here we see the promise that's declared in the midst of the problem. This is the promise that Adam and Eve were given right away in the garden following their transgression. And then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were repeatedly given throughout Genesis. It's the problem that stands at the heart of the entire biblical storyline because the problem that we read about stands at the heart of the entire biblical storyline. Right? We need rescued from something. And so here is the rescue. And we see this promise from two different angles in Genesis 49. So let's first look at, number one, kind of a subheading, the object of the promise. What's the object of the promise? We see this in verses 8 through 12. We might ask the question, exactly what, or better yet, who is being promised to God's people? Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. 
He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, with with the older brothers now out of contention, with the older brothers showing us this picture of how power and standing and status cannot somehow overcome the problem of sin, here Jacob foretells a future for the tribe of Judah that by grace shows him as the one with preeminence. Unlike his brothers, Judah is described as a victorious warrior who returns home from battle only to be greeted by his brother's shouts of praise. It's here that we see something quite shocking at the end of Genesis because this isn't about Judah at all. You know, um, let's read verse 8 again. Judah, your father shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. We remember... The Joseph narratives that that began this whole trek of God's people into Egypt, how did it start? It started with Joseph having dreams. Do you remember these dreams? About 11 stalks bowing down to the one stalk. 11 stars bowing down to the one star. And the immediate fulfillment of these dreams were obvious, right? It's Joseph's brothers and father came and bowed themselves down to him because God made him ruler over, uh, over Egypt. He made, made him royalty over Egypt. That was a, an immediate fulfillment, but the larger and more significant, the better and truer fulfillment of these dreams doesn't actually occur in those narratives. But here in 49, when it's said that all of the brothers, including Joseph himself, would actually bow down to Judah. His dreams are actually signaling his line. The ultimate fulfillment is not that Joseph's rise to greatness or someone in Joseph's line would continue to to rise to greatness and become the one who's bowed down to, but rather Judah's preeminence. And the one who would come from Judah's line would be the one who'd be royalty, who'd be bowed down to. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, this thing that we just read about, these narratives, the story from the life of Joseph, it's not really about Joseph. I mean, yes, it happened to Joseph, but it's not really about him. It's a picture of what is to come in the days ahead in the line of Judah. A victorious warrior, a lion would appear and his enemies dare not rouse him. This warrior is a warrior king. Judah holds the status of preeminence only until the day comes when the promised one arrives to whom the scepter truly belongs. This is the promised seed to which all of the book of Genesis has steadily been pointing us forward to. And maybe the most powerful statement of all happens at the end of that verse. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
the nations, you know, not just one nation. It's not like just Israel or just the descendants of Abraham would bow down to Abraham's seed, would bow down to this one who was to, to come, but rather all of the nations bow down to this promised one. Later, biblical writers would continue that theme by showing us how one of Judah's descendants, King David, would have a throne that would eventually have a universal reign. Psalm chapter 2 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Daniel 7 says, describing this promised one that, uh, J- that Jacob is describing here in 49, Daniel says, There before me was one like a son of man. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men from every language worshipped him. Revelation 5. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. And they sang a new song. You are worthy with your blood. You purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. How does this happen? Well, in verses 11 and 12, we see it's because of who the promise is. Right? The object of the promise is a person. We see the seed is so powerful that his very presence brings the kind of abundance to God's people where there's so much of the very best wine flowing, the kind of wine that was rare and precious in the ancient Near East that one dare not waste. It's in so, so much abundance that he can bind his donkey to those vines. It's so commonplace that he can wash his garments in it. An observation that we'll come back to later. But the king himself, this coming king, with garments washed in choice wine, has, has eyes darker than that wine, and, and white teeth, teeth whiter than milk. Symbolism that demonstrates strength and power and authority. We'll be starting a new series in the book of Revelation together this fall. So we're going from Genesis to Revelation. We'll see together so many of these shared themes at the beginning of the scriptures and at the end of the scriptures. And this is one of them. We'll see how this imagery at the end of Genesis about this coming promised one is echoed throughout Revelation to describe the victorious return of the one that Genesis promises us. So the promise of God's coming redemption is made here. And here's the object of that promise. A coming promised seed. A young lion warrior king. One who will come and triumph. That's who is being promised. Now we see the outcome of that promise. The object of the promise. Subheading one. The outcome of the promise. We see that in the rest of these verses through, chapter, through verse 27. In each of the rest of the blessings. Each one is brief, the blessings of the rest of the sons, but it also shows us the future blessing of prosperity that this promised seed will bring his people. They show us the outcome. As John Salheimer helpfully writes, he says, the central theme uniting each image in the rest of these blessings is that of prosperity. Just as with the image of the victorious king from the tribe of Judah, reigning over all the nations in a time of rich blessing, so also will each of the remaining brothers experience the same prosperity and blessing under his rule. Okay, so we don't have time to read through each one. But listen, Zebulun's home becomes a haven. 
Issachar sees that the land is good and pleasant. Dan brings a reminder of salvation. Naphtali multiplies greatly. Joseph bears much fruit. Benjamin has victorious conquest. Listen, in all of this, we see something that's remarkable. We see a return back to what was lost. So when this future promise is fulfilled, we actually see a reversal of what was lost in the beginning of this book. In the garden at creation, God pronounced his creation very good. Then sin enters the world, and human hearts turn away from him as creation groans. But here we see pictured, at the end of the book, something of a return back to the beginning. A return to the good. A reminder that God's purpose in creation was to provide what was very good for humankind. For people's good. For the city's good. This is the outcome of the work of the one who comes to rescue his people. That's the promise. God would send the object of our faith, right? His promised seed to rescue us from the primary problem of sin and crush the head of the serpent and the outcome of that, ending death itself and bringing prosperity and peace for all who cast themselves upon him. But now after seeing the problem of sin and this promise of redemption... We read the end of this chapter and we're reminded of the present in which God's people wait. After hearing about this future blessing, after, after speaking the words of this future blessing that is to come, of a reversal of everything that's happening, of going back to the life in the garden, now Jacob declares that he's about to close his eyes in death. He's about to, to die. After this long blessing of his sons in which he reminded us of the problem showed us the promise he now presently repeats his request for his sons to bury him with his fathers in the same place that Abraham where Abraham had purchased that parcel of land that we talked about many many months actually last summer we had that text where Abraham divides out and buys this parcel of land. As we talked about last week, and again, we see that with even more force this week, the reason it matters so much to Jacob where he is buried is because of the future hope that it declares. The future hope that God will make good on all of the promises that Jacob states here. He actually believes that that is the case. He he, he wants to be buried there because of the hope that it declares to God's people. He will make good on his promises. It will indeed come to pass. But how? Well, Jacob, as we'll see next week, and this, in this morning's text, at the end of this morning's text, Jacob dies, closes his eyes in death, and God's people continue to wait throughout their history. The line of Judah did indeed give rise to the most powerful king in Israel's earthly history, King David. And while King David was alive, he was promised exactly what the Lord promises us here in Genesis 49, that the king who would come from his line would hold the scepter forever. He would forever rule the nations. He would rescue his people from sin. And just like every ancestor before him, David closed his eyes in death, awaiting his future hope 
in the one who was to come, the one who was promised. Until finally, through David's line, through Judah's line, one came who would have his garments stained red by his own blood that he might save his people. He would come in order to bear the penalty of that problem that we see in verses 3 through 7. The penalty of our sin upon his own shoulders, taking what we deserve so that we could get what he deserved. Raising from the dead as a victorious warrior, returning home from battle to be greeted by the shouts of praise from his brothers, as we see in our text this morning. Jesus did this for us. Jesus Christ did this for us. So that now, by faith in what he's done, that we could never do for ourselves, we might have life that begins now and goes on forever. And so we have that life now by faith in him. Christ has come. The chosen seed of Israel has come. The Messiah has come. He did indeed bear our sin. And for, the, for all who throw their mercies upon him, we have that life now by faith in him. We have his spirit now showing us the cross and putting up Christ, putting Jesus on full display. We have resurrection life now. No fear in life. But, but like Jacob, the promise that we cling to still isn't entirely consummated. We wait longingly. The Apostle Paul writes about the present in which God's people wait until the moment comes in which it's fully consummated. This is what he says. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So this gospel has come. The good news of Christ has come into the world. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In other words, the gospel both saves us and sanctifies us. It brings salvation and it brings training and equipping as by it and through the work of Christ we throw off the old self and we become more and more like Christ. We put on the new self as we do what? Verse 13 waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're believers who are believers because we recognized the problem, our need to throw ourselves upon the mercies of Christ, it's a problem that wasn't too hard to recognize because we see evidences of it in our, in our own hearts and in the world around us. But through the Spirit, we were shown the promise that by faith in it, we might have life. And now we, we have that life, but we wait. We wait for Christ's return. We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why after giving us instructions for the Lord's table, where we now turn our attention, the Apostle Paul says, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup proclaims the Lord's death to one another until he comes again. Right? We wait together, and part of waiting is reminding one another of the gospel. Why? Because at the table, weekly, we're faced with a series of diagnostic questions about our faith. Do we really believe that the scriptures have authority? You know, I think that's something that the 
church today needs to wrestle with in about a thousand different ways. Do we really believe it? You know, I think it's easy to give lip service to the authority of the scriptures. I think it's easy for us to say, yeah, yeah, sure, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so I have a high view of scripture. And meanwhile, backhand the scriptures, you know, with so many of the things that we're led to believe and, and think in the world around us. We have to ask ourselves constantly, do we really believe that the scriptures have authority? That is to say, that when my heart departs from the scriptures, do I say, well, that's an area that the scriptures need to reform a bit, right? Because it must not be right. Or when my heart departs from the scriptures, do I say, no, I don't understand now, but in joy because of Christ, I bring my heart into line with the scriptures. That's the picture that we see in in uh, the scriptures related to how the Christian is to respond to Christ. He has authority. So, so if we believe that, here are some diagnostic questions for us. Do we really believe the text we read this morning has authority? Well, here's some questions to suss some of that out. Do you recognize your sin, the primary problem, and relinquish any self-righteousness? In your heart that might exist. I think we can come to Genesis chapter 49, you know, and I think one of the things we could do is say, oh yeah, the promise, man, the promise is great. I'm a Christian. I, I, uh, I partake in that promise and I wait in the present for it to come. And we kind of ignore the first part of the problem. And we think that somehow the promise, like we give lip service maybe to the front end, but we think somehow the promise was because of us. We think the promise is something that God kind of owes us on the basis of my merit. Like, not really, but basically is how we process that. And so that self-righteousness, has it crept in and influenced the way that we interact with God and treat one another? And I think this is a specific question that needs to be asked in churches, where it can be very easy from within religious cultures to say, well, I mean, the way that I do things is right. The way that other people do things, I don't know so much. And our self-righteousness starts to creep in. It ignores the first part of the text. It embraces the promises, though somehow when Jesus returns, it's because I am so deserving, right? And not because he's so merciful. So if we really believe that the scriptures have authority, we'll recognize our sin and we'll relinquish self-righteousness. That's the first question. Second question, if we believe the scriptures have authority, do we recognize the reality that Christ brings a transformed life? Because the other way to read 49 is to say, oh, I see the sin part on the front end. We're all sinners. So, hey, but by the grace of God go I, and who am I to judge? And I kind of just live like the rest of the world now. I don't really have to change. God, you know, God died for sinners, right? Which is true. But we forget the reality of the second part of what the Apostle Paul talks about, that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, but also training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We forget the reality that the promise was given that we might have new life, not the old life anymore. Do we believe that? If we just go on living like the rest of the world, believing that, that the gospel was some kind of an inoculation, it's, ah, oh, I'm saved now, and you know, the first part was true, but I got that, and... Now I'll just live like the rest of the world. The New Testament holds out no hope for you that you are actually a believer. Do we recognize that? Number three, church of God, 
Does the reality of what this chapter describes move your hearts to worship? Is there any emotive aspect of what we read about in Genesis 49? I don't ask these questions as someone who's arrived. I ask these questions as someone who struggles alongside of you to see that there's no possible way for me to both claim I believe that the scriptures have authority and yet harbor my self-righteousness or harbor my sin or have unchanged emotion and, and praise and worship before the Lord. Because the Lion of Judah... This victorious warrior, when he comes, he's greeted by the shouts of praise of his brothers. Jesus, when he he was resurrected, his disciples fell at his feet in worship. Church of God, when we gather together for worship, is the life of the Spirit active in us, reminding us what we see here on the pages of Scripture, that despite our sin, despite what we deserved, God gave us this promise that wasn't based on me and it wasn't based on you, but it was entirely upon Him? Does that move you to worship? It should. And so, we come to the Lord's table asking ourselves these questions because it's a reminder that we are not believers because of our self-righteous efforts and that in the midst of our belief it changes our hearts changes our lives so that we become worshipers